Turn your attention to our passage of Scripture, and if you, uh, if you did bring your own Bible, the, we're going to skip to a few places. This is all in the bulletin. If you would like to follow there, it might be easier this morning. And, uh, and the main text I want to focus on is in bold, but uh, I wanted to read some other passages, <clears throat> and here's why. Uh, last, last summer, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly magazine that caught my eye, and it was, it was the cover story, and it said in big letters, is Google making us stupid? And it spelled stupid, S-T-O-O with little colored O's like Google. Uh, is Google making us stupid? As by a guy named Nicholas Carr, and just l- listen to this one part from it. He said, because <clears throat> he talks about I, I love to read. I, I grew up a reader. He's, he's, you know, he's writing for a living. He says, over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument, and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration often drifts, uh, starts to drift after two or three pages. Is this happening to you too? Because when I read this, I thought, yikes, this is happening to me. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. And when I read that, I thought, okay, he just verbalized exactly what I felt about in in my own life. And the reason I wanted to read that was, was just to say this. When you, when you come to the Scriptures, really, every word is important. Now, there are going to be some texts that take more stopping and reflection than others. But we are coming to one of the instances in the Gospel of John, and, and this is a somewhat well-known feature of John's Gospel, where, he sa- where Jesus will say... I am the something. And the reason that that's so poignant is I am from the Old Testament. That's God's divine name. God's name, his, his title you might say is God, but his name, the way my name is Brian, is I am. And so when Jesus stands up and there's just this stark sentence of I am such and such, it's, just, it's loaded with meaning. And this morning we're going to read him saying, I am the light of the world. And what I want to do is slow down, all right? Slow down kind of Google-trained minds of ours and hear it and feel it. Because if you just read those words and then flip to the next thing, it just sounds like a religious thing to say, you know, like someone praying, and Lord, we ask that the light of your heavenly blessing would dispel the shadows. of." And you just it has no real depth or punch to it. And I don't want it to be that. And so I want to look at these different 
portions of the Gospel of John and consider how usually to us it's not a big deal to think about Jesus being the light. And in the Scripture, it's a big deal. When we have our lessons and carol service in a few weeks, the closing hymn is, O Come All Ye Faithful. And the, clo- the last stanza that we will sing together is, True God of true God, light of light eternal. And where that came from is something even older than that hymn. It's the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the hymn that both Roman Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, that we all claim. And right in the middle of it, in one of the most beautiful portions of that creed, and it's talking about Jesus, it says He's God of God. And then it says He's very God of very God. But sandwiched right between those, it says He is light of light. That this sort of irreducible basic statement of Christianity says, Jesus is light. Why is that important? Look with me in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And this is the judgment. Chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In chapter 8, verse 12, which is our main focus this morning. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we've we've just sung about you being the source of delight. And we have hearts that crave delight, that crave satisfaction, that, that crave fullness and meaning, and yet we do hide from your light. And we love darkness. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Spirit you will shine light in a very real way into this room and into our hearts. 
by your word and that we will not recoil, but we'll move toward you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look at, at this text, I have to be a little bit teachy for a second, but, but it's important because this is going to have a lot to do with how we understand this, this I am saying of Jesus. Uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at Jesus standing up at a very, very popular, beloved annual feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was always in Jerusalem, and it was always packed, and it was very celebratory. It would be something you looked forward to when the crops were in, and the harvest was put up, and the work was done, and all the males, plus others, had to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this together. Now, in between the text that we looked at last week, which is in chapter 7, and then this part of chapter 8 is a famous story. And it's the story of a woman who is caught in adultery and is dragged in front of Jesus. And Jesus, in sort of a set-up trick question, is asked, what should we do with this woman? And this is the one about, you know, let, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. Now, that text will preach. I mean, you can preach all kinds. Of, you know, Jesus writes on the ground, and it'd be fun to think about what he writes. You know, he's writing out what they did that morning or, or whatever. Um, the truth is, that text doesn't appear in any of the oldest, most reliable New Testament manuscripts. Uh, in a lot of English Bibles, it's now, it's now left out. And the reason that's important is that if you, if you excerpt that, and if you excerpt a, kind of a private discussion that's held among some religious leaders, it means that you basically go straight from the text that we looked at last week and the text that we just read. And so here's why that's important. It means that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is still at the feast of booths. Now that's really important. And so what, what I want to look at first is what's the context of Jesus saying this? This was how we looked at it last week. What's going on around him when he says these words? And then what does it mean? What did it mean to them? What, is it, what does it mean for us? All right, the context, again, is this annual feast called the Feast of Tabernacles and we t- or Booths. And we talked last week about... Brian Hamby, I didn't even see you until just this second. Hey, good to see you. You know, if you can have a, a baby, a new baby a few days ago and a bike wreck and make it to church, you're now the poster boy of, uh, of, of worship attendance. Thank you. I... I, I I would have thanked God for you being here if I'd seen you. Not to put you on the spot or anything like that. <clears throat> but the, this Feast of Booths, uh, all, these, all these Jews would, would, would gather into Jerusalem. And if you lived there, you would set up this little temporary shelter of uh, vines and sticks and, and uh, greenery. Or you would, if you came from a distance, you'd find it in the area, the hillsides. And you would set up these booths. You would live there for a week, and the ancient Jewish records say, if you have not seen Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, you have not seen joy. Isn't that great? I mean, it must have been like something that uh, Christians feel at Christmas, except Christmas is not commanded. This was commanded, and God commanded, we said this last week, you have to rejoice. 
You have to have a great time. Even you sticks in the mud, you have to go rejoice for a week. But there was another tradition that grew up. This was not commanded by God, but it grew up in the Jewish culture. Is that during this week, there were four candles that were set up in the temple of Jerusalem. It was set up in the court of women. And these candles were 50 cubits high. So when I say candle, don't think like table candle. Don't think votive. 50 cubits is 75 feet high. And uh, they, they took entire bowls of burning oil to keep them going. And what they used for wicks, we learned from this, this source called the Mishnah, is they would take the worn out used garments of the priests that they had used that year, that they had washed, and they'd been, you know, uh, just the wear and tear of active um, duty for the temple. They would take these worn out garments. And that's what they used for the wicks. And it was said that this is, it was so bright because the temple is built on the Temple Mount. It's basically the highest point in the city. And then from the highest point in the city, you get these 75-foot tall candles. <clears throat> it's not just one, it's four. Now think about it. No streetlights. No flashlights. No cell phones. It's either you have a torch or you have candles or lamps, <clears throat> or it's the moon and the stars, or it's nothing. And the records say that when these candles were lit, literally, it lit up every courtyard in the entire city. In other words, you could almost put your torches up because this light, this fire from the temple just shone into all the residences, all the buildings of Jerusalem. And it was just, it was awesome. Now, what would that mean inside a Jewish heart at that time? I mean, one thing it would be is just, it's just fun to put light into darkness, you know? Again, like, if, if your power went out, I'm sure everybody's did if you were living here during the ice storm, there is no sound like that, when the power comes back on, it's just like, joy bubbles up and like, everything's lighting up, you know? You know, when, when electricity's on, you feel like, I think I could make it without electricity. And, you know, when it's off, we're huddled in the corner, just, you know. The joy of just seeing darkness dispelled. Uh, think about this. Have you noticed how children love flashlights? And flashlights are great. I'm pro-flashlight. But I don't just love flashlights. Children love flashlights. And I think it's got to be. And this predates movies with lightsabers. The love for flashlights predates that. So it's got to be something else. And I think it's, you get to get back at darkness. You know, if you've been scared as a child, and some adults are too, but if you've been scared as a child of darkness, it's like your own little dagger to go, ha! And you think about, for children or for grown-ups, how fun bonfires are. Even if it's not necessarily that cold, it's just fun. The darker it is out there to be with people you love and it's just huge light, just lighting up the darkness. There's that. And again, we talked about, you know, this, this feast, crops are in. This hard manual labor is done. We're, we're resting together. God's taking care of us. But I want you to think about what else it would mean in a Jewish heart from their, from their story, their chronology. Fire was what the Israelites had 
when they left slavery, were rescued by God and taken out into the wilderness. No permanent shelters, no, you know, no EMT that you can call 911 to help you if you need help. But God traveled with them visibly in the wilderness. And during the day, for shade, a pillar of cloud, the divine cloud, but at night, the pillar of fire, warmth and light. Now what became of that pillar? Because eventually they made it out of the wilderness by His leading. He always followed the pillar. You follow the pillar. But finally, they came into the promised land, and they occupied it. And when they had occupied it, God said, Now, that you're not living in tents anymore, I will have my house. David was the one who wanted to do it, but his son Solomon builds this glorious temple. And here's the main thing I want you to think about from a first century Jew's point of view, is that when they finished building that temple that took years to build, to be just right, that when they dedicated it in that city, in Jerusalem, that the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory, went into the temple as if God visibly moved into His house. And it was so intense that the priests who were serving in the temple that day had to run out because the glory and the light of the presence of God filled the temple. And in a sense, the people working for him run for their lives. And there must have been a sense when you were a first century Jew that it's great to be done with work and it's great to be here with my friends. And, it's, and they said they would sing into the night. They'd play all their instruments. Anybody that could play it said would play their instrument. And to have those big lights and to look forward to that every year, to know how that looks and to know how that feels and how the light looks on your friends' faces. But also that sense of Man, that our God is fire. I don't mean that they worship the fire God, but I mean that our God, He is both a consuming fire, but He is the light. And they sang a psalm in their hymn book that said, God, in Your light, we see light. And in that context of that feast, Jesus stands up, It says, again he said to them, which seems to be another indicator, this is at the same feast where he was talking earlier. He says, not I will show you the true light. He stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I am the light of the world. And what does that mean? Let's start off with the bad news. Because here's what Jesus says after the I am statement. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the bad news. Jesus is acknowledging something that the whole of Scripture makes very clear. And if you're new to any of this, I want to say this on the front end. On the one hand... Jesus will give the absolute bleakest views of humanity. He'll tell people that are listening to Him that they're evil. And then He will give the most hope. It's not, I'm going to give you hope by, not, by protecting you from the bad news. He will tell you the hard things. Here's a hard thing. 
Our natural condition is to walk in darkness. And that's a very Old Testament way of talking. That, that, that our lives are a walk. And that's one of the reasons why stories about journeys and walks really resonate with us. Everything from Pilgrim's Progress to Lord of the Rings to, to what Canterbury tells, we love stories about journeys. Our life is a journey. Our life is a walk. Our natural condition is to walk in darkness. And the, here's the thing. The darkness can be from the outside, but it's always from the inside. And here's what I mean, is that the darkness can be the fact that we live in a fallen world. I mean, did anyone have scripted a global economic downturn for 2008, 2009? Did anybody have that scripted in? But man, it affects a lot of people. And you take away someone's job for even just a few weeks, but if you start talking about a few months, it is hard. I mean, it feels like you are stumbling through darkness. God, you want me to pay my bills, but this is how I pay my bills. You want me to be generous and give. This is how I'm generous and give. And you control everything, but I don't have the work I need or that I want. It's darkness. Or a relationship shifts on you. And it might be a best friend, a roommate, your own child a parent, a spouse, that the relationship shifts. And because of how close this person is to you, see, it's the friend with whom we bear our heart, right? You know, C.S. Lewis said, hey, love anyone or anything and you will have your heart broken. And that is true. You bared your heart and you had your heart broken and now you feel dark. Now, that, that happens to everybody. But the darkness that we always have to deal with is from within, and it's this, is that even if I am a nice, kind, uh, Bible Belt sort of person, what comes naturally to me is to figure out where I'm going to walk with me and through my resources, not to go to God for light. That I'll figure this out because my instincts up till now have been pretty good, so I'll see what I feel or what I think, or what I've done in the past, or what my friends think of it, and I will go with that. And Jesus says, if you lean on your own resources, because you're going to walk, every life is a walk, you will walk in darkness. That's the bad news. And the darkness, if it is not ended, will be eternal. Because one of the metaphors that is used for a hellish eternal existence is not just fire, it's not just wrath, it's not just chains, weeping, gnashing of teeth, it is darkness. That's the bad news. But there's the good news. And the good news is, <clears throat> and, and again, I, it is amazing the bravery of Jesus. And I hope it's not silly to put it that way, but for a man to stand alone where everybody thinks, man, these booths, that's why we're here. Or those candles, that's why we're here. Or those sacrifices that are being made, that's why we're here in Jerusalem. For a man to stand up alone and say, 
I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What does he mean by that? He at least means this, is that this earth is under a curse. And the earth is an amazing place. Amazing weather, amazing fall, whether you love God or not. Amazing beauty, incredible foods, incredible people that are endearing. It's an amazing place that God made good, but the earth is cursed. And it means that, as one poet said, things fall apart. A relationship shifts. Or your body gets sick. Or you don't have a job. Or you become depressed. And that along with the earth being dark, we're dark. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, could could you at least agree that you have times where you feel the darkness of the ways that you disappoint people? That we are not to others what we want to be. We are not to others what we aspire to be. That maybe I've, make, I've broken promises, even maybe public vows that I made to other people, and it's my problem. And what this crowd can't know is how Jesus is going to fix that. You know how he's going to fix it? Is that right outside that same city, he is going to be nailed to a cross. And when he's on that cross... He will not be wearing anything. Our, our art is not always accurate. He'll be the second Adam. First Adam brought the curse. Now he's the second Adam. No clothes. And he's going to take on himself the curse. Meaning, not just everything that's wrong with his people, but everything that's wrong with the world. And when he takes that on himself, And God, in a sense, curses him with agony and death. If you read the Gospel of Luke, he records two things that happened. Luke's the only one that records this. The first thing is that in that temple, Jesus is outside the city being crucified, but in that temple, when he died, the curtain that shut everybody but the high priest out from the presence of God, it tore in two from top to bottom. And you know, you know what that was God's way of saying visibly? You don't need earthly priests anymore. There is one great high priest from now on, and that's who you need. This is me saying that the earthly priesthood is over. And think about that. The wicks of those candles were the priests taking off their garbs for that year, Another season of being a priest over, but then they'd, they'd make a new pair. And Jesus is standing up saying, I'm going to do something, and it's not just going to light up Jerusalem. It will light up the whole world. I'll end the priesthood. Because I am that God. I am God. When you followed the fire, who is I am through the wilderness... I am the light of the world. And here's the other thing that Luke records, is that Jesus was on the cross from about 9 in the morning to about 3 in the afternoon. And you know what Luke says? That from about noon to 3 in the afternoon, something supernatural happened. 
the land of Judea went dark. The whole land. For no explainable reason, as if God Himself is visibly demonstrating, He is not just taking on Himself lying or adultery or worshiping other gods. He is taking on Himself the curse and darkness to make it go away. And what are we supposed to do with that? A few things here. First off is this, is to believe it. Is to believe it. We always have to come back to that, especially in John. It is one thing to intellectually assent to. There was a guy named Jesus. He did live. And apparently he died. And apparently the physical resurrection is real. But it is another thing to believe and then to do what Jesus says, to follow And let me be the first to tell you, because Jesus would put it even more starkly, if you follow Him, He will take you down roads you naturally would not have gone down. He doesn't say, if you follow me, I'm just going to make it stop being dark ever. He says you won't walk in darkness. The world is dark and you're dark. You will walk with light. Do you believe? And do you follow Him? We're not saved by how well we do in our following, but Jesus calls to follow. Let me ask you this. Do you know what you know without Him? Do you know what you know yourself and then look to Him to like, oh yeah, and get me into heaven too? Or do we know what we know through Him? That I cannot be a friend. I cannot be an employee. I cannot be a next-door neighbor unless He shows me what that is. Because what comes naturally to me, honestly, is darkness. It might be moral darkness, but it's dark. To believe and to follow Him. But I want to say this too, and it's, it's interesting how this turned out, because I was going to say this even apart from George being here, and it turned out that these lined up together. Don't worry, the application is not just about you, George. And it's this, that Jesus did not stand up and say, I'm the light of the Jews. I'm the light of Judea. He said, I am the light of the world. And one of the prophecies about the Messiah, the Father says to the Son, I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles, that salvation might come to the ends of the earth. And I I want you to think about this before we close. It's easy to read the Bible as if the Bible was written in America. It's great to be an American. But it's easy to read that as like, yeah, we need to go to other places and tell them about Jesus. When Jesus said this, we were the other place. We are the other places. We're the Johnny-come-latelys. We're the Gentiles. And Jesus says that my light is for us. The whole world. And I want you to think about this. Whether your mission field is your neighborhood or it's Kenya or some other nation, Jesus says something audacious to us. He says, I am the light of the world. But in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, you are the light of the world. You will reflect my light to the whole world. This family are not 
is not the only individuals in this room that are supposed to live a life of mission. To follow Christ is to live a life of mission. You may feel like you have nothing to offer to your next-door neighbor, that you don't know what to say, or I don't know what to say to my coworker. You need to understand that we are not the source of light. But we have the privilege to be moons, mirrors, with no light of their own, that reflect to frustrating neighbors and weird co-workers or cool co-workers, people that God puts in our life near and far to reflect that He is light. To follow Him is not to walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise your great name that you are the one who began creation by speaking light into existence and that this gospel begins with this one coming to get us ready for the light. And Lord Jesus, we would confess that what is natural to us is to recoil and protect our shadows and our darkness and not come into the light to be seen for who we are and for why we need you so much. Lord, shine your light upon us. Shine your light upon the churches of Greenville that we might follow in your ways. We ask this in your name. Amen.